0: Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, a typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
1: Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Blood Groove, Torso and Pinches, Ironside, MD, Scuttlebutt, Hartman, Gingrich. Clan Roland, Big Beard, Willie P., Buggy, Schmarls, Proctor, Chairboat, Long Knives Logan, Cannon Monkey, Axios, Pitlock, Jack of the South Seas, Lost Again the Navigator, Governor Roop, Gin Soaked Jim, Workman, Rum Runner, Skipper, Sawbones, Hefe, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. Last time we talked about the arrival of the Pirates of the Fancy in Nassau. How Henry Every was greeted by Governor Nicholas Trott and welcomed into his home. How the rest of the crew was welcomed by the people of Nassau. We made special mention of the women working at the Wheel of Fortune Inn, who were certainly a top priority for the Pirates, But that welcome was extended by almost everyone in town. Anyone who had goods or services to sell were overjoyed to see these pirates arrive. All of those planters and their inland sugar plantations would have been very pleased at the arrival of 90 slaves, all of whom were for sale at rock-bottom prices. And they all knew who these men were. Every single person on Nassau would have figured it out. They knew what these men were, they knew they were villainous pirates, the scourge of the high seas, but they didn't care. You know, sure, maybe the preacher condemned them on Sunday, and maybe a lady's knitting circle tutted about the scandal of it all, but these people were reaping the benefits of those cheap slaves, their husbands were doing business with these men with plenty of coin to spare. When the people of Nassau had an opportunity to write their friends in Charleston or Boston or London, they put the pen down. They chose to allow these men in. And all of that, that entire attitude, was the fault of one party. The government of England. This is episode 238. Brushes with the Law. When we look at the great political revolutions of the late 18th and early 19th centuries, you know, the American Revolution, the French Revolution, the Haitian and Spanish-American revolutions, we can point to a number of causes that they all shared in common, reasons that those revolutions broke out, and a big one is the desire for a constitution. You know, the United States Constitution was hailed by political thinkers all over the world as one of the greatest documents ever conceived of by man. And it wasn't just the liberal, genteel Age of Enlightenment guys, although they wouldn't shut up about it, but even some pretty fringe thinkers loved the United States Constitution. Take Karl Marx, for example. He called the American constitutional representative republican system the greatest form of government in the world. He did that in his manifesto. Now, of course, Marx wasn't crazy about the bourgeois capitalist economic system we had over here, but representative democracy, that was great. But everybody in the world wanted in, at least all of those genteel Age of Enlightenment guys wanted a similar system. That's why you've got All of these French revolutionaries early on talking about the U.S. Constitution. Similar things happened in Spanish America and Haiti, but all of that was underpinned by the desire for one single principle. And that was liberty. But of course, liberty is kind of a nebulous concept on its own. You know, liberty from what? Liberty to do what? And in the case of a place like Haiti, that's pretty obvious. They wanted liberty from slavery. But America and France and Spanish America, well, they were looking for more of an economic liberty. At least those genteel middle-class merchants, the Age of Enlightenment guys. They wanted liberty from the mercantilist economic systems of their mother countries. You know, in the British colonies in North America, They wanted freedom to trade with France or Spain. They were producing all of these valuable goods, cotton and hemp and tobacco, that was fueling the British Empire and making a bunch of Englishmen very rich, but the colonists were not getting what they saw as their fair cut. They were legally forced to trade only with England, and at well below market value. So they had a revolution. And you know, France was a bit more complicated, but at the end of the French Revolution, when Napoleon Bonaparte took power, he instituted a very mercantilist continental economic system. And that, according to a lot of historical thinkers, is why Napoleon's empire fell. At least, one of the big reasons. But these were serious problems all over the colonial world, on a much smaller scale than those big world-shaping revolutions, but you could take a look at Nassau. You know, in 1696, they didn't have much. They were just a poor little island. They produced sugar, but in pretty paltry quantities. And they collected salt, but their real product of any economic value was ambergris. And they had it, they could collect it all day, but what were they going to do with these goods? Well, they had two options. They could sail for Jamaica, which they really weren't supposed to do, but they could. However, that would take them right by Tortuga and that nest of French pirates there, so no thank you. What they were supposed to do was take it up to Charlestown in Carolina. The Bahamas were kind of a territory of the Carolina colony. They shared the Lord's proprietor. And you know, that's fine... I mean, they would have to sail past St. Augustine, which, you know, they had a bit of a history with Nassau, but that's okay. Problem is, even in Charlestown, they weren't getting very good prices for their ambergris. It was enough to keep them alive, but not enough to thrive. It wasn't giving them the income they needed to build proper homes and better industries. It wasn't enough to even provide for the common defense. You know, they needed a fort and some ships and some big guns. but They didn't have the money for it. All they had was this ambergris. And no one in the English-speaking world really seemed to appreciate its value. It's like the people who had access to oil in the late 1800s, who knew it was about to become a really valuable commodity. Or, you know, you all knew somebody who was really into Bitcoin early on and told you to buy in, but did you listen to him? Well, hopefully. But ambergris was like that for the English world. For now, it was undervalued in places like Charlestown, but you know where it wasn't undervalued? Where they knew the worth of a commodity like ambergris? Tortuga or Cap Francais, or any of a dozen different French colonies, they knew they could sell that ambergris at a premium back in Paris. I mean, that's why the French were sniffing around Nassau in the first place. They had a couple little footholds in the Bahamas, but they weren't there for sugar. They couldn't grow much of it. They weren't interested in coconuts. They wanted to get their hands on that ambergris. And the English there at Nassau would have been happy to sell it to them, but they weren't allowed to. And even if they dared disobey the law, what were they going to do? You know, just waltz up to Tortuga and be like, Hey guys, anybody wants some whale vomit? I mean, they'd take it, yeah, but they'd probably take your ship too. And maybe your life. But then, like a godsend, the fancy arrived at Nassau. Henry Every stepped on shore with his crew of well-armed villains. And you know... What do you need, Nassau money? Here's a thousand pounds. Guns? Here's forty-six. Big cannon. What about people to take your goods to Tortuga? Well, we have just the guys for that. The pirates of the fancy offered a lot of solutions for the people of Nassau. Solutions to some of their most endemic problems. First of all, there was the ship. The fancy was a fine craft, but at this point, she was a bit worse for wear. She'd been all around the world with less than ample upkeep. She needed a very good careening to clean the hull and repair any leaks they might find to get her into really tip-top shape. And I think that Nicholas Trot suspected that the men of the fancy were using him. I think that Nicholas Trot thought that they offered him the fancy so that he would do all the work of getting her in tip-top shape. And then, I think that Trot thought they were going to take it back. And he couldn't do anything to stop them. They'd just have him do all the work and take their ship on their merry way. And that's not out of the question. I mean, these were the same pirates that paid for goods with a check from Timothy Tugmutton at the Bank of Aldgate pump. It would have been very much in character for them. But I don't think that was the case. I don't think the pirates wanted the fancy back. I think they had a lot of money and wanted to find somewhere to spend it in peace. Still, it looks like, at least I think, the governor took precautions against that eventuality. See, the men who unloaded the fancy did a very thorough job. They stripped her of everything. All of the cargo, obviously, but the guns and the powder and the shot and the tools and the rigging and the tackle and the sails, everything. And that's what you do when you're about to careen a vessel. You want the ship to be as light as possible. But once they were done unloading everything on board the Fancy, for some reason, the men on board weighed anchor. That is, they took the anchor out of the water and just left the Fancy there to drift in the harbor of Nassau. And this was only two or three days after the pirates arrived. But in the early morning hours of day four, while everyone was still sleeping, the wind and the tide picked up, and the Fancy was tossed ashore. If this were indeed a plot by the governor, to weigh anchor so that Fancy would run aground, so that the pirates couldn't run off with her... Well, if that was the case, it backfired. The fancy wasn't merely grounded. She was wrecked. She'd been thrown onto a coral reef, and the hull was severely damaged. This ship wasn't going anywhere. One of the fancy pirates, Philip Middleton, called this moment when the ship that had outrun so many of their enemies, a ship that had been his home... When he saw she had run aground, he said it was a, quote, sad sight. But for most of the crew, it was more than that. For them, it was a sign. If the governor here was planning to stab you in the back, if he was welcoming you with one hand and sending off a letter to Carolina with the other, if he planned to seize all of your coin and see that you were arrested, this was the obvious first step. So the crew began to make plans to escape Nassau. But they weren't going to do it all together. Instead, they broke up into three distinct groups, what Stephen Johnson calls escape pods. But all of this was really bad news for some of the men. Take, for example, Henry Adams, the quartermaster of the fancy. He got married. Like... Two days after he arrived in Nassau, he married one of the local women there. We don't have too many details about this, but I suspect it went something like this. The pirates arrive, and the men spend their first night with all of the women at the Wheel of Fortune, and Henry Adams fell hard for one of them. You can imagine a scene playing out in which Adams secures this young lady's services, enjoys himself enormously, including all of that... Cuddling and talking and emotional stuff we mentioned. But then she has to go back to work. You know, she can't spend all night with him. So they go back into the main hall, and one of the other men agrees on a price with this particular woman. And they start heading into the back, and Henry Adams is just sick with this sudden burst of wild jealousy. You know, this was the first woman he'd seen in months. The first in a couple of years who could speak English. They may have shared something of a connection there, so he stops them. He was the quartermaster, but that's not how things work in this establishment. She had to get back to work. You can imagine hard words being spoken. The pirate in question agreed on a price. He wasn't going to be stopped here. You can imagine the men drawing swords and checking pistols, and Henry Adams finding himself in a bit of a pickle. He could back down... Or he could do something reckless. Something like dropping down to one knee and asking this young woman for her hand in marriage. And what are you going to do? You could continue working night after night for a few pieces of silver here and there. Or you could take this guy with a chest full of gold up on his offer. No, I don't know if it was as dramatic as all of that, but it was a brief courtship nonetheless. And when Henry Adams left Nassau, he took his new bride with him. A few other men there in Nassau found themselves in similar situations. Take John Devon, the surgeon on board the Fancy. He also married relatively quickly, but he decided to stay in Nassau. He opened up a surgery and lived happily enough for about a year. But when all of this activity in Nassau eventually came to light, England sent an agent named John Graves to New Providence to investigate. Graves reported finding seven men of the fancy there, still living in Nassau, and all of them married. Now, they included the cooper and the doctor. They were all detained and questioned by the English authorities, but ultimately they were let go. You will remember that the cooper was tricked on board the fancy before they enacted the mutiny. In John Devon's case, and that's who we have the best records about here, he was put on trial, but he argued that he was tricked into boarding the Charles II and forced to sail with the pirates after the mutiny. And he was a surgeon. Pirates were known to do this kind of thing all the time, especially for surgeons. And John Devon was released. He did, though, relocate to Boston shortly thereafter maybe to escape the infamy. However, he was arrested again, almost as soon as he arrived in Boston. But he did have the proper papers to show that he had been tried by royal agents in Nassau and released. So once again, he was free to go. He bought himself and his wife and their kids, I presume, a modest home there in Boston, and set up a reputable surgery, And this kind of thing was the case for more of the men of the fancy than you might think. A lot of them got away with it. I'm sure it helped that in most cases they were able to make... sizable donations to whoever needed to receive a sizable donation. As for those who did not stay in Nassau, those who formed the three escape pods, they bought three small ships. All of them modest little vessels but seaworthy, The first of these to set out from Nassau was the Isaac, commanded by Thomas Hollingsworth. They set sail from Nassau in mid-May, bound for Ireland and thence on to England. The plan was simple. They would land at a quiet dock somewhere, bribe the dockmaster, and make their way home to their friends and family. And that worked for a while. You know, this ship only had 23 men on board and had no association with the Pirates of the Fancy, aside from the fact that they were all Pirates of the Fancy. But these men weren't immediately arrested. Many of them did make it home to their friends and families, but some of them got noticed. You know, there may have been neighbors who knew that they left with the Spanish expedition, and they returned home two years later with a suspicious amount of money. Or some were foolish enough to spend coins bearing the Grand Mughal's mark, and some just got drunk and bragged about it at the local pub. One way or another, several of these men got pinched. But we're going to hold off telling their story. That story is going to be the trial of the century, after all. Or after the trial of King Charles I, I suppose. The second trial of the century. The second ship to depart Nassau carried 50 men and set sail in late May for the Carolina Colony. Stephen Johnson writes in Enemy of All Mankind, The pull toward the American mainland was partially a simple matter of proximity. Charleston was only 400 miles away. But there were legal reasons to head to America as well. The colonies had developed a reputation for both nurturing and tolerating piracy. The reputation turned out to be a valid one, at least as far as Every's gang was concerned. None of the fifty men who sailed for the Carolinas were ever convicted of crimes associated with the Gunsway attack. Some had brushes with the law, some disappeared, but not a man among them was ultimately punished for his crimes. End quote. One of those brushes with the law happened in Providence, Rhode Island. Two of the pirates who sailed to the Americas named Cornish and Down, well, they were arrested and sent to jail, but somehow they managed to escape. There's no proof of what happened here, but most of the locals believed that the sheriff had taken an astounding bribe and facilitated their escape. Another member of the crew, Josiah Rayner, he was one of the original mutineers, well, he made his way to New York, and there he promptly made contact with Governor Benjamin Fletcher. Fletcher, as usual, went pretty cheap. A mere 50 pounds from Josiah Rayner's sea chest secured the Pirates' safe passage in New York. And then there was Pennsylvania Governor William Markham. Officially, he was the deputy governor to William Penn, but... William Penn was pretty much retired, so he was the governor. But Markham was especially welcoming to the Pirates of the Fancy. Reportedly, he received 100 pounds each from a number of pirates that docked in Philadelphia, and even took steps to protect them. There was a planter from Jamaica named Robert Sneed that arrived in Philadelphia and found all of this very disturbing, and he began kind of a personal crusade against William Markham. It's a bit of a long story, though. He wrote a ton of letters back to the Lords of Trade and James Houblon and anybody who would listen about these pirates, but he didn't get a whole lot of traction there. It would be a more fascinating tale if his crusade against the pirates had ended with any of them on the gallows, but it didn't. There were rumors, probably started by this Mr. Reed, that the governor's wife and daughters were in cahoots with the pirates, and more than that, though, they spied on behalf of the pirates, and whenever the authorities were closing in, the wife and the daughter would make their way to the pirates' house at night, enjoy a nice night-long tryst, and tell them that the authorities were coming. Probably not true, but fun nonetheless. There were, though, a few pirates that left Nassau on their own not in one of the three pods. Take Daniel Smith, William Griffin, and his brother Benjamin Griffin. They all returned back to their home at Bermuda. When they arrived, William Griffin kind of disappears from the record, but Daniel Smith and Benjamin Griffin had some business. They had a friend, also from Bermuda, named John Birch, who also took part in the raid on the Gunsway. But he was not a member of the Fancy's crew. He was from the Pearl. And if you'll recall, when they were splitting up the booty, the men of the Pearl allegedly clipped their coins. So the men of the Fancy seized their shares. And it looks like these two men felt guilty here. They went by John Birch's house. Now, he'd yet to make it home from the Indian Ocean, but his wife was there. And they told his wife that last they had seen him, John was alive and well. But they went a step further. They opened up their own purses to ensure that his wife got at least a portion of what he was owed from the raid, and she took it. It's a surprisingly honorable deed for, you know, notorious pirates, but no good deed goes unpunished. This act of decency got them noticed, and a few days later, Mr. Smith and Mr. Griffin were arrested for piracy. Now, Mr. Griffin managed to escape, but Daniel Smith did not. A few days later, he was hanged for his crimes, and some few others did escape out into the wide, wild world, and we're actually going to meet some of them in the future. In one case, William Dampier On yet another expedition around the world, this is the HMS Roebuck Expedition, well, somewhere out there on the fringes of civilization, he runs into a group of Englishmen that he knows. He remembers them from his time on the Spanish expedition, and he knew them to be mutineers and pirates. William Dampier, well, we'll wait to get to that story when we get to it. Then we have the third ship, the Seaflower. The Seaflower was to sail under Captain Joseph Farrow, formerly the captain of the Portsmouth Adventure. The Seaflower left in early June 1696 and carried most of the names we're familiar with. Henry Adams, for example, sailed on the Seaflower along with his wife. A few others that we'll talk about, but the Seaflower carried Henry Every. Allegedly, probably, after the sea flower left Nassau, nobody ever saw Henry Every again. That's not true. Members of his crew saw Henry Every again, but no record exists aside from one nebulous tale of Henry Every anywhere in the world. All of the hundreds, maybe even thousands of Officials and officers and magistrates and governors, everyone looking for Henry everywell, they never caught wind of the King of Pirates. And to this day, we don't know what happened to him. But there are naturally a lot of theories. Next time, we're going to talk about those possibilities. I'll tell you now, we won't come to an official conclusion, but I do have ideas of my own. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show. All of our patrons on Patreon, everybody who has left us ratings or reviews, and everybody who has recommended this show. Without all of you, I wouldn't be able to do this, so thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you've yet to check them out, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G dot com dot A-U. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at PirateHistoryPodcast.com. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening.